definitely a lot of mistakes. You are talking to a lot of people, so one thing can go wrong and then everything could collapse. Uh, but the biggest mistakes that we identified are, uh, first of all, it's too much too soon. Um, you want to do it all. That's why just pick two. I know, I know that uh, a lot of people suggest you have to have six competitors, so, because otherwise you don't know what's going on. And it's true. But if you want to start something, make sure to start small. Um, I guess the second thing would be, how do you format your assets? Um, a lot of teams are familiar with certain communication style and certain way to receive assets. And we're not here to push the, our own um, format. We can recommend it if it's not there, but we have to adjust because in the end, you're you're always in support mode. You're there to just say, hey, you're like a mom, what do you need? Okay, well, I'll get you that. No, and then did that work? Yes, it did, amazing, what do we do next? Welcome to the Product Marketing Life podcast, brought to you by the Product Marketing Alliance and hosted by me, Mark Cassini, Product Marketing Manager at Jobber. Every two weeks, I pull insights from some of the world's most talented product marketers who uncover the secret sauce of successful product marketing. In this episode, I'm joined by Dayan Gazjic, CEO and co-founder of Grow and Scale. After spending a good chunk of his career in social media and then growth marketing, Dayan decided to venture out on his own, leaving his native Slovenia behind for Canada and launching Grow and Scale. Today, as co-founder of Grow and Scale, Dayan offers tailored competitive enablement and competitive intelligence services for B2B and SaaS tech companies. During our chat, Dayan and I get into the do's and don'ts of setting up a competitive enablement program as a product marketer. He shares his recommendations on where to focus first, how to prioritize, and why starting small is always the best path forward. All right, with that out of the way, let's dive in. Hey, Dayan, how's it going? It's going well. How are you, Mark? Good, thanks. Super excited to have you here today. Thanks so much for the invitation. Really excited to be here. Good, good. Well, let's get into it then. I think it'd be great if you could walk me through your career so far and what led you to found uh, Grow Plus Scale. Uh, yeah, so I've been in the tech industry for almost 10 years. Uh, my start of the career was with early stage startups. I'm from Europe, so in small town uh, and small country from Slovenia. So I had to bring results in the marketing side as a one person marketing department. And uh, I was just super curious about how companies succeed. I didn't have a budget, so my way to create results was just look at the growth marketing exper experiments and just go really deep into content research and content strategy. Um, and after two early stage startups, we got to traction, but not much further. I figure out, well, um, let's try this on our own with my best friend and my marketing assistant at the time. So we created Grow and Scale, which started off as a content strategy and production company. But our clients asked us to do competitive intelligence and sales enablement. We said, all right, well, we'll take a look at it. And then we figure out you still need to do really deep research. You still need to create the best possible assets. But instead of feeding uh, public materials and um, sharing content publicly, you're basically supporting your internal teams. And uh, yeah, after three years, we we are now uh, 
feeding and helping uh, enterprise mid-markets uh, organizations strictly for sales and competitive enablement. So yeah, it was a pivot and we were very happy that we did that. Very cool. Yeah, and we'll get into a little bit more about what you know, Grow and Scale offers and in the context of you know, competitive um, and sales enablement and how that applies to product marketing in a second here. But before we do that, I'd love to just understand a little bit more about your journey so far. So you mentioned that you were uh, a marketing team of one with, with no budget. What kind of pressure does that put, you know, you under in a role like that? Cause I think when you hear, you know, product product or sorry, marketing teams of one, not unheard of in the startup world, but to not have any budget, that seems like a, a fairly unique challenge. How did you go about navigating that? And how do you, how did you like survive the day to day of that kind of pressure? Yeah, well, uh, every year there's a 1% less of my hairline. So that speaks about the startup experience. Um, but I just look at what's available. So if there's no budget, then there's just limited amount of channels that you can use. And social media was one, but the other one obvious was content and content marketing just makes a lot of sense. It's still difficult, it's resource heavy, but you're not spending for it. So I just figure out how to do the whole content marketing funnel, respect the SEO at the time. And um, that's how we created this product market fit, or we just create attraction with marketing channels. And once we got, got those results, then we had some budget for paid, but initially I just had to be very strategic with the channels that I had to pick. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a baptism by fire. Uh, so congrats on, on just being able to, like you said, get through that experience, albeit with a little bit less hair than when you started. And I definitely feel that uh, feeling all too well myself. Um, curious though, you know, being a marketing team of one, um, as you said, you know, being in a smaller town in a smaller country in Europe, was product marketing a function within, within the broader kind of marketing ecosystem in the space that was a thing at the time? Uh, you know, I, I think when I talk to product marketers, I get the sense that it's, you know, been a, a relatively new phenomenon. That's a role that's kind of emerged over the past, you know, three, five, maybe 10 years at most. But I'm curious when you were, you know, in these startups on your own, did the topic of product marketing ever come up or was it just, you know, things that a product marketer would do, but owned by this one individual without the you know formal title of product marketing? Uh, yeah. Um... I I don't think we had product marketing prevalent. Uh, even when I was looking and researching, hey, what does product marketing person do? Uh, I figured out, okay, I'm doing about 60, 70% of this already, but I have, didn't know there's a name for it. Um, back then, the most hyped buzzword was growth hacking and growth marketing. And then that was, Basically, that stemmed to different branches, to performance marketing, ABM, field marketing, all the other initial, all other necessary stuff. But yeah, long, long story short, yeah, product marketing, I'm learning about it right now, and I'm looking back and learning fundamentals, and then figuring out, okay, I know 80% of this is basically just lots of customer product research, um, plus all the other extra. In a way, I'm happy because it seems like it's its its own niche and you don't have to do the actual marketing that you do, like paint or uh, copywriting that stuff. 
but it's still important to just figure out where we're going, why we're doing this, how are we different, uh, what's our go-to-market strategy, and so on. So I like it that it's separated now. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, and it definitely, you know, I, I agree with you that it definitely feels like growth marketing maybe had a two to maybe five year head start on product marketing. Cause you're right. I remember when I was starting off in my product marketing career, very much at the time, growth marketing, growth hacking, that was the, the, the buzzword, as you said, and the, the, the kind of effort that everybody was focusing on within the marketing world. And then slowly over time, product marketing became its own thing. And now feels like it's kind of being the, the focus of a lot of different marketing teams. And again, much like businesses, functions are cyclical. I'm sure there's something that's going to follow up behind product marketing. That's going to steal the thunder to a degree, but you're right. Fundamentally, a lot of what a product marketer does, a traditional generalist marketer would do, but there's that extra, as you said, like 30, 40% that a product marketer is really, really specialized in. And there's less of a focus on the things like, you know, demand gen, copywriting, as you said. So yeah, it's, it's an important distinction to make. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. I always, I'm always curious to see how product marketing fits into these different corners of industries um, and, and locations. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes I do feel as an imposter. Why are you talking about product marketing? You're coming from all these fields, but then we all have different ways to get to where we are. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure, and we'll get into this in a second here. You've, you've probably worked with a number of product marketers uh, at Grow and Scale. Um, so, so let's shift, let's shift gears uh, ever so slightly here and, and focus on the topic of the hand and, you know, obviously Grow and Scale focus is a lot on, you know, helping um, their customers spin up these competitive and sales enablement programs. So I want to understand from your perspective, how a product marketer should go about rolling out their own competitive and sales enablement program, assuming that is something that they were assigned kind of to do on their own. So, you know, let's say I'm a product marketer, I'm working at an, a, you know, a startup or a smaller to medium size org, and I've been approached to roll out a competitive and sales enablement program. Outside of all the other things I have to figure out, who would you recommend be included in that kind of close, tight-knit strike team internally to help get the program off the ground in the early days? Right. And so hopefully they give you a lot of resources in terms of time that you can do this. Because even with bigger organizations, I do see there are mostly one or two full-time competitive intelligence uh, uh, professionals. Um, but if you're dedicating maybe half of your time, then it's just you need to figure out what are the core priorities and what impact can you do. And mostly with a lot of organizations that we're looking at sales, we need to unlock and win those competitive deals. So it will just be figure out who you are, figure out your core positioning, figure out the market landscape and talking to customers and then pull out one, maybe two uh, biggest competitors that you know you're dealing, uh, you're losing deals to, and start there. Compare yourself, your offer versus their offer, get data. You don't have to sign up with um, uh, sophisticated competitive intelligence tools just yet. You can do a lot with Google Alerts, with social listening, something like that. And then just work really closely with salespeople, learn what are their uh, pains, where are the knowledge gaps, what needs to be created, and just focus on one, maybe top three things for objection handling for the product and figure out positioning against one or two top competitors. 
it's really, really important to start slow and get results there. And then once you have that, uh, it's actually a big win, then you'll get the resources, the budget, and you can scale that program across the organization. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense, right? Like when you're dealing with limited resources, maybe this is something you're doing on the side of your desk. You want to start small and show that even with that small focus and effort, you can you know, have some kind of impact and show some kind of results. Um, I'm, I'm curious though, beyond just taking that, you know, start small approach and working directly with sales, is there anyone else outside the air sales org you might encourage a product marketer partner with, whether it's someone in success product, or do you think, you know, product marketer just working as closely with one or two sales, you know, leaders is sufficient. No, this is uh, really important to stress that it's not just about sales. Sales is just usually what uh, organizations want to see the change at. Um, but it's really important to talk to marketing. It's important to talk to customer success. Just, hey, you're going to learn a lot about uh, onboarding, where are people falling off, and you have a chance to fix your product. And uh, even with executive teams, like what's going on with high strategy wise, which two, three big players should we watch and what to, what in terms of intelligence do we need so we are aware and we're not being reactive when a big change is coming. Um, you can probably see right now, everybody's a little bit flustered and kind of like paranoid with AI. We need to get product to this AI, that we have to have AI. Well, yes, but we need to be careful about it because the bigger the organization is, the less uh, the less forgiving the market is. If you do one giant misstep in strategy, that can send you back for years, and your brand is uh, is not as hot anymore. So you need to include all of them: product, marketing, sales, and uh, stakeholders from the strategic side. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And let's for a second imagine again in this scenario, I'm a product marketer, but I've actually been given a budget, maybe because the leadership team has acknowledged how critical, you know, setting up a good competitive and sales enablement program is to the, you know, company's even short term to medium term success and health. Um, but everyone is so focused on, you know, just the day to day sales, the day to day running of the product that there isn't necessarily the, the, the wealth of internal resources that you can rely on. What are some of the benefits of partnering like an organization um, like grow and scale? To, to help bring that program to life, as opposed to just trying to do it all on your own, albeit with, with, a, with a budget? The biggest advantage for partnering with somebody that is uh, expert in this is first of all, there's we can start this right away. You don't have to create this uh, role within your company. This is going to take three or four months to get started. You still have to learn how to do it properly. And um, you're, you're most likely adding this on top of your 16 other priorities. So you won't have as much free hands to create this competitive intelligence uh, or enablement uh, role uh, where you are. But if you engage with the agency, we have specific people that do the research. We have a in-house designer that create assets that are on brand uh, and extra assets like pitch decks, ABM decks that stem from all that research and they can be used right away. And then who has time to do conference note-taking, which is 
hey, it's a little bit tedious if you do it yourself and you're definitely not being paid to just stay there at two or three hours at the conference. But that's one source where you hear about the new signals about product launches from your biggest competitors. Um, and in the end, you have to report this. So think about it. If you have to do this all in-house and you might just say, you just realize that competitive enablement is something that you need to do. Now you have to do the researching thing. You have to do the creation thing. You have to design it. You have to talk to everyone. You have to sur survey everyone. You have to report what's working, what's not, and all, do all this tedious thing like note-taking and uh, scouring and creating a flow. It's really too much and it is a big lift and could be overwhelming if you want to do it in-house. And the last thing is, with, especially when you touch the win-loss programs, uh, there is this point of uh, being biased. So if you try to do this in-house, you might get answers back that, that are like, okay, no, everything is all right. We're, we're doing fine. I don't need anything. But the KPIs and performance metrics are showing that there's no lift. And it might be because your team is not entirely truthful. They just want to say what you want to hear. So having a third party uh, Switzerland approach, somebody is unbiased, it's, uh, it's, way, uh, it's way more reliable. And yes, you're going to hear things that you don't like, um, but that's important. You need to know where, where's the problem so you can solve it. Yeah, so it sounds like you know, if you do find yourself in a situation where you've been tasked through all these programs and the expectation is we need to get something up and running as soon as possible. And, you know, the org is willing to sometimes hear that you know, honest truth that, you know, sometimes can be a tough pill to swallow at times, then, then partnering mm -hmm. with an outside agency is, is kind of the right way to go. So I think that makes a ton of sense. So on to my next question here, you know, oftentimes when we talk about these types of programs, I think a lot of the time, people outside of product marketing will immediately think, okay, what are the kind of tangible tools and pieces of collateral that I'm going to get out of this work, right? Like they just want to see outside of the results and winning more deals. They want to see these tangible things that they can use to make the effective selling of the solution that much easier um, or to navigate those you know, competitive situations that more easily. So what do you think are some of the first internal tools or pieces of collateral that a product marketer should prioritize when rolling out these programs? Yeah, everybody know what a battle card is in product marketing, and it's one really clear format that everybody understands, especially great for sales, because that's what they use to start winning those compute deals. But battle cards are just one page in a book of compete enablement program. Um, the other things could be um, competitive positioning, what are the competitive pillars against your competitors, uh, product teardowns, the whole library of research usually houses note-taking, uh, all the data points that you can use and then curate it. So it's a lot. Um, and we use that research to build uh, narrative, narrative pitch deck, narrative ABM uh, slide decks per particular or against particular competitors. So it houses a lot of tactical and all the data points that we can produce some sort of strategic uh, strategic map what's going on. So the stakeholders can make the right strategic calls. 
but on the tactical sides, you can use those battle cards to um, win deals. And on the product side, hey, we know what's going on. We know what uh, competitors are doing. We can stay our path or we can slowly iterate so we make the right product that uh, fits the market and our customers. That makes sense. And do you have any advice on how a product marketer could better prioritize some of those collateral asks? Like, you know, again, I'm a product marketer, I'm spinning up these, this program and I've been asked for a battle card and a competitive narrative and, you know, this robust research and strategic recommendation. How would you recommend someone in that situation kind of stack rank what is going to have the most impact? I, I'm not expecting like a, a you know, a, a list in terms of start here, then here, then here, because I think every org is going to have different needs. But what sorts of things should a product marketer consider when trying to prioritize what they should focus on first? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's always you need to know who you are. So this fundamental positioning statement, who you are, and your core positioning pillars are the alpha and omega. It's where you start. This is where we start. And from all this positioning statements and messaging, and we will go forward and build all the other assets. So that's the first thing. And then it's by priority. And it's no surprise, it's always how can we help sales, how we can support sales. And we go back to this positioning, okay, this is our Bible. Now, what do we need for intelligence? And then we start creating assets. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. And, and I'm sure, you know, you've worked with a number of different product marketers and, and orgs, you know, in the, uh, on rolling out programs uh, exactly like this. Curious, what are some of the common mistakes you've seen made by product marketers rolling out these programs and how do you suggest they could be avoided? Uh, yeah, so definitely a lot of mistakes. You are talking to a lot of people. So one thing can go wrong and then everything could collapse. Uh, but the biggest mistakes that we identified are, uh, first of all, it's too much too soon. Um, you want to do it all. That's why just pick two. I know, I know that uh, a lot of people suggest you have to have six competitors because so, otherwise you don't know what's going on. And it's true. But if you want to start something, make sure to start small. Um, I guess the second thing would be how do you format your assets? Um, a lot of teams are familiar with certain communication style and certain way to receive assets. And we're not here to push the, our own um, format. We can recommend it if it's not there, but we have to adjust because in the end, you're, you're always in support mode. You're there to just say, hey, you're like a mom. What do you need? Okay, well, I'll get you that. No, and then did that work? Yes, it did. Amazing. What do we do next? So uh, respect uh, the format, respect other people's time. You're going to have to go to meetings. You're going to have to send surveys. Uh, it is a little bit of a change in the organization itself. So you have to communicate why this is important, why you need to do it. So the communication piece um, and keeping everybody in the loop. In the loop. Um, you can do this with team communications and uh, internal newsletter, what's going on, just so everybody see what's going on in the market. And there's no surprise when there's a meeting and uh, uh, kind of like analysis and reports for the last uh, push in the, on, on these programs. 
Yeah, I, I think that's super helpful. And I, I want to just dig a little bit deeper into, you know, the advice that you you repeated a couple of times, this idea of starting small, starting with just a couple of competitors and then slowly expanding. At what point do you think your product marketer would be able to recognize, okay, we've got these two, now it's time to expand to a third, a fourth or fifth. Is there a specific point in time or a specific, a specific milestone that they should aim for to be able to say, hey, we're ready, let's start looking at more? Or is it something that's just so changes so much depending on the org and the industry and the competitors. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I would say it is uh, depends on the industry and the competitor market and even how much resources do you have. Um, like everything in life, there's this 80-20 rule, like 20% of competitors are gonna cause you 80% of the problems. So just do 80-20 of your 80-20, just pick those. And once those are solved and you're comfortable with it, then you figure out with scaling uh, to other competitors or to other products. I mean, if you're an enterprise, you probably you probably have tentacles in different industries as well. So let's just take this playbook and add it to another product, which usually comes with other competitors. But it's good to just test it in a little sandbox that is alive, get those results, and then scale it. I like that approach of depending on, again, the environment and whether you're offering multiple solutions to start with the first two. And then if needed, instead of expanding into you know the same competitors for that one product, move on to the next product. So it gives you that nice breadth of coverage across all of your solutions. And then you can begin to go deep by looking at more competitors across each of those areas. I think that's, I think that's smart. And again, it goes back to your advice of starting slow and starting small and then slowly expanding out when you're starting to see results, or at least when your internal teams feel comfortable with the information that you're providing them with. So you're not, you know, overburdening them or, or throwing so much at them. They don't feel as though any of the information is sticking or that they're able to use it because it's just too much to sit. So I think that makes perfect sense. I want to jump back to the topic of the battle card. So it came up a couple of times in conversation and something that I, I found interesting when I was going through the grow and scale website is you've got this free atomic battle card template. First of all, I love the, love the branding. I, I like the idea of, you know, having something that stands out. So this uh, atomic battle card I thought was pretty clever, but what do you think sets it apart from other templates that you've come across? What what do you think makes it so unique that you're able to call it atomic? Right, it's it's a just it's a cheeky name of how we get started, just because we already mentioned start slow, start small, um, and creating one asset that solves majority of the problem. Um, you can do this with one battle card. It just houses information just like, hey, how, how are we different from our core positioning standpoint? How are we different in terms of pricing? So anything that your sales rep is going to be asked on, on, a, on a call. So we created this atomic battle card that shows weaknesses and strengths, how to, how to do objection handling right there and then. Um, what kind of content can we send to this person once the uh, once the sales uh, conversation is over? So we did 80, 20 of all the battle cards and put it into one, making it a really nice digestible format. And that was a really good starting point of the battle enablement program. Because imagine if you would push eight different battle cards, that would be a little bit overwhelming and especially seasoned um, sales persons or sales people in the team would be kind of like 
I don't have time for this. I know how to sell. Um, so no, thank you. But we figured out how to do it with one little, very nice little format in battle cards they can use and they get results with. Yeah, I think that's super helpful advice because I know when I myself was rolling out a competitive enablement program uh, earlier in my career, I felt very overwhelmed by just the sheer amount of information that you can put in a, in a battle card. And I feel like there's so many different resources you can find online that say, oh, you have to include these 10 things. No, you should actually include these 15 things. No, you actually want to include these 20 things on your battle card. It just becomes overwhelming, especially if you're trying to do this on your own. So I think the advice, again, to reiterate, starting small, starting focused. And I like that idea of, you know, you know, doing covering enough so that you're cut. Co- so you're, you know, covering 80% of the scenarios. Um, I, again, I, I think it's super smart. So thanks for sharing that advice. Cause I'm sure there's a lot of product marketers who feel like they want to over deliver and do everything, but by doing that, you end up delivering an inferior and less helpful battle card because you tried to spread yourself so thin in terms of information that none of it actually becomes actionable. And to your point, the sales professional just looks at it and says, this is this is way too much. I don't have time for this. This is not going to help me. Right. It's I don't know. Um, but when I was in high school, we had we made this cheat sheet that you sell a tape all over it, and then you store it somewhere where nobody could see it. So and basically the inspiration for a battle cards probably comes from there if, if you put all the information really small you couldn't see it it was just too much so you had to put all the essentials in so okay if i don't have uh i don't know napoleonic wars or the year where napoleonic wars ended it's just like oh i have it right there it's right there and i can just see it and uh give the right uh answer so I think that's where the battle cards approach probably stands for. If you want to be really good, just make sure you have the relevant information right there at your fingertips. I love that analogy. It's it's almost like, you know, if the sales rep is approaching the deal and the conversation with the customer almost like a test, they're probably pretty smart. They probably know, again, like 80% of the information offhand because they've been, you know, doing it for so long and they know how to navigate the conversation. But asking yourself, like, what's that additional, you know, 20%, whatever it might be, that they, they're gonna need to lean on in the form of a battle card or a cheat sheet to, to, to really ace the test and to really knock it out of the park. I think that's a really helpful analogy to keep in mind when kind of creating that battle card content. So thanks for sharing that. Cool, so on to my second last question here. You know, I'm trying to think about scenarios in which, you know, product marketers rolled out a program, they're, they're really happy with how it's come, it's shaped up, and you know, they're ready to ship out their first battle card and they deliver it to the sales team, and they're finding that it's just not getting the traction that they were hoping for. And they're just, they're, they're seeing that the sales reps aren't using it, whether that's through, you know, checking calls through their call tracking software and, you know, knowing that some of the verbiage on that battle card isn't being used. Um, you know, if you find yourself in that situation, what sort of questions would you ask to diagnose the cause and how would you address those potential issues? Uh yeah, definitely talk directly to the sales reps first, just asking them, hey, what's going on? Do you need to format it differently? Uh, or a lot of organizations, they pick their first, let's just say SWAT team that uh, are engaging, usually um, pretty young at the company, but they're really hungry for results. So they would be more acceptable um, to use them. Um, when we work as an agency, when we work with uh, clients, we usually have support from the department leader. So it's this kind of like top-down approach. And they are aware that this is a huge issue. So 
that sponsorships or that pressure usually helps. Um, it's always smart to have some sort of metrics about your um, CI assets usage, which means changing uh, your CRM, add some mandatory fields. So um, even, hey, put, was CI asset used in this deal? Yes or not? You have to check it yes uh, or leave it blank. And then, okay, I failed three times. I should probably just check this box. So I have 10 for 10 points on, the, on my sales prospect call. Um, but the best way is just having a conversation, pick, pick, the, team, pick the right team uh, and motivate them. I mean, if you land a huge deal, a huge account, everybody on team comms are going to go crazy and just say, okay, this was achieved with uh, new, fresh battle cards that we just unrolled. So that's how you're gonna get attention from all the other salespeople as well. Yeah, I think that's really smart. I think oftentimes when product marketers push out new collateral, specifically battle cards, there can sometimes be this assumption that, well, we gave it to them, it's theirs, it's on them to use it. And oftentimes we forget that there has to be the extra effort put in to hold those teams accountable and put in the work to, to make sure it is being used and address why it might not be. And I like that idea of making it a mandatory field in the CRM or highlighting the wins uh, and the big deals where the battle card was actually leveraged to help make that deal you know, cross the finish line. Um, it does add that level of excitement and then kind of that proof point to say like hey this deal obviously it wasn't exclusively down to the battle card i'm sure there are a lot of other factors at play but this was a part uh it played a part in the deal being successful and, and highlighting that and, and making a big deal out of it not only makes the i feel like the rep feel notice but also you know puts that highlight on the battle card itself which then ideally creates that snowball effective usage for for future big deals as well so i think that's some great advice Awesome, Dan. Well, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. You know, uh, sales and competitive enablement uh, is a topic that comes up quite regularly on the show. Um, you know, not only just because it's such a focus for product marketing, but a lot of orgs are now starting to spin up their own dedicated, you know, competitive and sales enablement functions. Uh, so it's a it's a topic that a lot of product marketers uh, are, are curious about. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing your insights with with me and the the listeners today. Um, but before I let you go. I do want to ask you my last question, and it's one I've been asking all my guests so far this season, and that's, what's an area of focus within the realm of product marketing that you think product marketers will have to pay extra attention to this year, more so than in previous years? Yeah, and since coming from this field, it's quite obvious that competition is just getting fiercer and fiercer, especially this year, um, where our budgets are probably not increasing, but the market is still there and you still have to get those KPIs. And right now you're just dealing with much more uh, brutal landscape with all the other players. So I think that's going to be a huge deal. And I also think that with this AI just taking over our lives, I would think it's going to be even more important to have or preserve this human aspect because until robots talk to each other, all the deals are still going to have to be this face-to-face -face or on screen or with another person and figure out how you can better serve um, that and just the fundamentals, take care of your customers, talk to them, research and make sure whatever you're doing, it's for, for your customers. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think if you spend any time on LinkedIn over the past, you know, two, three, four months, let's call it, that definitely seems to be the topic that anybody can talk about is AI. And that's pretty standard for LinkedIn. There's cycles of, of focus. And that's pretty representative of what I think a lot of businesses are going through right now. Or like you said, at the beginning of the conversation, firms are asking themselves, okay, how do we how do we take advantage of AI to make our product stand out and get attention when everyone else is talking about AI? But to your point, you know, at the end of the day, it needs to be, you know, used as a tool to to help improve what you're already doing. But there still needs to be that human aspect, especially when it comes to you know these big deals um, where there's lots of prolonged negotiations and there's a lot of resources being tied in tied up in them. So I think that makes a, a lot of sense, and it's more about you know how can you leverage the AI tools to augment or enhance the work that you're already doing. And there are some people already coming up with some pretty impressive prompts and within the competitive and sales enablement space to keep a, you know, a close eye on competitors and kind of approach competitors in different angles, which I found pretty interesting, but yeah, I think you're right. Um, something that product marketers this year and probably for the next couple of years, will need to, to, to keep uh, on their radar for sure. Cool, Dan. Well, this has been, uh, like I said, a great chat. Um, before I let you go, I wanted to give you the chance to, you know, let others or listeners know how they can get in touch with you if they want to learn more, maybe they want to work with Grow and Scale in a professional capacity. And, uh, you know, you also, in advance of our conversation, mentioned that you have a special offer for listeners that you wanted to, to share. Uh, yeah, and thanks for the opportunity. So you can connect with me on LinkedIn. The agency is called Grow and Scale. We're at growandscale.com. And for this podcast, I've uh, we've prepared this some sort of a compete strength score test. Uh, it takes less than two minutes, and you can find it at growandscale.com slash life. And it takes two minutes. You're going to figure out where the holes in your uh, competitive program. And I'm sure you're going to learn uh, about a couple of low-hanging fruits that you can uh, implement right away. Yeah, and if I know anything about you know lone product marketers or hungry product marketers, always looking for for a free tool to help assess how they're doing and evaluate how they're doing. So I'm sure you'll get some listeners to take you up on that offer. So we always appreciate the uh, the chance to to take advantage of those. So so thank you so much. Well, like I said, it's been a great cat, uh, chat, Dan. Uh, I'll let you go, and I look forward to, uh, to catching up with you again in the future sometime. Thanks a lot, Mark. This has been fun. For everyone still tuned in, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast please help us spread the word to other product marketers. Before we leave you to get on with your day, if you want to get involved, here are a few ways you can. If you're a product marketer and you want to come on the show and speak about your day, a specific topic, or your role in general, that's one option. If you want to flex your podcast hosting skills, being a guest host is another. And finally, if you or your company want to spot to an episode, there's a third. Thanks again and have a great morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are.